You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to the Domecast. It's the Domecast duo this week. There's just two of us here in the News and Observer's headquarters in Raleigh. It's Colin Campbell and this is Jordan Schrader. Uh, we're going to talk about the week's news and uh, I'm especially interested to hear from Colin about uh, how he plans to cover the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Uh, you're headed out uh, Sunday, right? To yeah. go to the to, to head to Cleveland. Have you ever been ever been to Cleveland? No, this is probably I think my first time in Ohio. Period. Uh, so I'll be flying out Sunday night and uh, getting there probably just in time to get a rental car and go to bed. But the uh, action starts on Monday morning. I think the convention, the North Carolina delegation, usually has uh, breakfast meetings where they hear from various uh, important politicians and i've heard the i believe paul ryan is one of the folks that they're going to hear from at some point during the week so i'll be interested to hear uh who they talk to and and what they have to say uh with the the north carolina delegation now there's 72 delegates uh what have you learned about the the delegation as you head there so the delegation is interesting because um as far as how they vote on the first ballot it's all pretty much settled by the north March primary results. See, Trump won this state, so he gets the most delegates. Uh, Ted Cruz was a close second, so he gets a, sort of the second number of, of delegates. And then there's a, a small number of delegates for uh, Marco Rubio, for John Kasich, and for Ben Carson. And even though those guys dropped out of the race what feels like ages ago, um, people are still bound to uh, vote for them. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who votes for Donald Trump or is required to vote for Donald Trump is actually a Donald Trump supporter. Uh, There are a number of people who uh, will be voting for Trump who listed on their application to be a delegate that their first choice was Ted Cruz. In fact, there's more than half of the delegation um, put on their applications that they really liked at the time they were applying Ted Cruz as their their top candidate. Um, And back when there was some uncertainty about who was going to win the nomination and whether there was going to be a brokered convention, uh, the Ted Cruz campaign made a big push to try to make sure that um, people supporting him won the uh, elections at, at district congressional district levels uh, to be delegates and uh, sort of a holdover from from that point in time, even though long ago we've kind of folks have given up the idea that there was going to be any sort of uh, element of surprise in, in who gets the nomination. Yeah. Did anybody tell you they're still pushing for uh, some kind of a uh, brokered convention or is that all uh, that whole never Trump movement pretty much fizzled out? I think their last uh, chance was when the Rules Committee met earlier this week, and that included uh, two of the North Carolina delegation were in town this week for that rules meeting. Um, And one of the proposals there was to unbind the delegates or at least let the full convention vote on whether to give up the whole idea of you're bound to a a particular candidate. Um, So I think it's it's a pretty long shot at this point. Um, Bob Orr, who's a former uh, NC Supreme Court justice and uh, one of the never Trumpers who has told me he's not going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what, uh, said he sees it. Yeah, there's still a long shot that something could happen. He's hoping that, you know, if it does, at least he'll be there. Uh, Otherwise, he's going to cast his vote for for John Kasich, who's always been his favorite, uh, and then go home before the, the Trump speech on Thursday night. Now, back when you signed up to go to this, uh, you probably were thinking it was going to be uh, the usual kind of scripted affair, right? Uh, 
Uh, I can't remember exactly when you would have uh, heard that you were going to go or found out you, you were going to go. But um, but then we kind of had this period where we thought this was going to just be a free-for-all. And now I guess it's, it is somewhere in between. It, it does seem like it's a, a foregone conclusion that, that Donald Trump will be the, the nominee, or at least mostly, but uh, uh, mostly assured. But we do have kind of a, a, a strange and unusual uh, convention ahead of us. It could be one of the most interesting things, uh, conventions we've seen in, in our lifetimes, I would think. I mean, just looking at, looking at the speakers, it's, it's an unusual lineup, right? Yeah, so it's um, a lot of uh, Trump's uh, family members who will be speaking. And, and you always hear a little bit, like, you'll hear from the wife at some point in, in most conventions. Um, but he's got, I think, his uh, sons and daughters are, are given prominent speaking slots. Uh, the most interesting to me is some of the uh, business folks that are speaking. There's not a whole lot of uh, the usual fare of, you know, prominent politicians from the party, Congress members, that sort of thing. There are a few of those out there, but not as many as you'd normally see. But uh, my favorite was the the head of the uh, UFC, the, like, um, wrestling group or whatever it is, is, is going to be speaking. Um, a couple other sort of uh, millionaire, billionaire-type business folks who are, I guess are friends with with Trump and will be speaking on his behalf, but uh, certainly not your your average uh, speaking lineup. And what will be interesting in following the delegation um, is is to what extent does our delegation, particularly the ones who are either lukewarm Trump supporters or people who don't like Trump at all, stick around for that stuff? And how much do you, do I you know run into them at the hotel bar where they've been hanging out for two hours and skipping the speeches? Well, uh, the, the delegation is definitely divided on Trump. It seemed like there was a pretty positive uh, North Carolina reaction on the news toward the end of the week that Mike Pence would be Donald Trump's running mate. He announced it in a tweet. So, again, uh, we're in uncharted territory here in terms of uh, uh, presidential candidate communications. But uh, uh, we did, uh, Lynn Bonner had a story uh, to, on uh, Mike Pence and what North Carolina Republicans thought, and it seemed like the consensus uh, was that that he represents a little bit more reassurance to the establishment and uh, a, a sort of a um, maybe a reassurance to um, Christian conservatives that uh, the ticket would be um, more balanced in their view. Any uh, any thoughts on on Pence's? on the choice of Pence? Yeah, I think that he will appeal to sort of that wing of the party. I mean, from from a North Carolina perspective, it's it's worth noting that uh, he was probably had his biggest news a couple years ago with that Religious Freedom Act in Indiana that uh, was viewed by the the LGBT community and a lot on the left as being uh, sort of allowing people to discriminate. If you were a wedding cake baker and you didn't want to serve a gay wedding, you could say no to that, uh, which has sort of uh, drawn a lot of comparisons with House Bill 2 here in North Carolina. Carolina, uh, the difference being that I think Pence ultimately uh, backtracked on it, and we have not seen uh, quite that level of, of backtracking among uh, state leaders here in, in North Carolina. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that's viewed and, and whether uh, Pence is more of a social conservative is going to bring up uh, this sort of issue, the you know transgender bathroom issue as part of the, uh, the presidential campaign, something that Donald Trump is not. Uh, I think Donald Trump has been saying, well, it's a state's issue, and he wasn't really going to weigh in one way or the other. Pence, I think, is probably more likely to um, talk about these sorts of issues as, as more of a traditional conservative candidate. And we did have uh, Governor McCrory say that he's not going to the convention, that he's going to be campaigning in the state, although he has endorsed 
uh, Donald Trump, and the delegation as a, a, in in Congress is split about whether they're going to the convention. Um, most of them are are on board with with Trump, either. Uh, explicitly or sort of I will support the nominee kind of quotes. Uh, but a, a fair amount of the, dele the congressional delegation are going, uh, although we're not seeing most state-level politicians like McCrory and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest and uh, uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger. Yeah, and a lot of those guys, I think, don't go in general. Sure. Um, it's hard to really ascribe the uh, an anti-Trump motivation. McCrory, in fact, I think didn't go in 2012 and uh, was made some sort of quip about um, that he— didn't have any voters in Florida where the convention was being held, so he'd rather uh, stay back here and, and campaign for governor. Right. Well, uh, also speaking of the governor, he signed a bunch of bills this week, and uh, it was kind of uh, interesting to figure out how to cover these because we didn't really get much, uh, if any, notice of what he was signing uh, before he signed them. But he did sign uh, the state budget. And uh, the, the headline there is a raise for, for teachers. Uh, he signed uh, the body cam bill, uh, which got some criticism for making it, in some cases, more difficult to access the footage from police body cams. But uh, police agencies uh, were joining the governor for that bill signing, and there seemed to be support from uh, law enforcement. Uh, and at the end of the week, uh, signing the, the coal ash bill. Anything you thought was notable in the uh, the budget or the other bill signings uh, that uh, that McCrory had this week? Yeah, so I thought the um, budget bill signing was interesting in that, uh, you know, we kind of sort of figured this was going to be the, the main headline out of the budget negotiations was uh, the teacher raise piece. And the governor, obviously, by doing the budget signing, uh, not in his office, but instead at a school down in, in Union County near Charlotte, uh, was clearly trying to send the symbol, this is a budget about helping out teachers. And I think we're going to see that as a, a campaign theme going forward. The The body cam bill was interesting. And I think this was just sort of a, a quirk of timing that it came, you know, in the week after these two uh, deadly police involved uh, shootings around the country that has sparked a lot of discussion about body cams. Um, and in a sense, has I think drawn more attention, at least on a national level to this, uh, this bill that went through North Carolina and didn't really get a huge amount of attention and scrutiny. We wrote some about it um, during the process when it was going through the legislature, but I didn't see nearly as many national headlines as after McCrory signed the bill and it started to get lambasted uh, by some of the, the folks that want to see more or I guess less restrictive access to uh, body cam footage. And I think there's been a lot of spin around that too, is that uh, on the one hand, uh, proponents can say, uh, this is more of a public record than it would have been under current law because under current law it's almost completely uh, up to the the agency or the the municipality as to whether to, to release the footage or not um, and they have sort of blanket ability to say no uh, but on the, the other side of that uh, an agency that wants to release it or a city that's that wants to have a less restrictive policy is sort of bound by what the state has done here uh, so you could have circumstances in places where it's harder to get it now than it was two weeks ago. In other places, it's easier to get a hold of a copy now than it was two weeks ago. So it's it's a little more nuanced than a lot of the um, outrage I've seen uh, from, from folks who don't like the way the bill's written. The uh, release to the public would require a court order, though, right? So a, a law enforcement agency wouldn't be even be able to, even if it wanted to, release. Uh, they could, uh, uh, assuming they that it didn't fall into several categories, but they couldn't release it to everybody. To, it would have to, to, to be public, right. to the person who 
who's shown in the video or their attorney or family member. Um, it couldn't if, if we as the media said, hey, there's a police shooting over there. We'd really love to see the body cam footage. Uh, the answer we're going to get is, is no. Right. There is a provision in there to show it to people who are in the footage. And I think that they would have to come into the police station and take a look at it and couldn't make a, a, a copy yeah. unless unless you did go through a court. I yeah, think. they don't. So, uh, the idea is not to have it get leaked to the media and have the, the footage shown on the six o'clock news. And one thing you wrote about out of the budget that was signed uh, this late this week was uh, some changes in, in taxes. What happened? Uh, what happened with the sales tax? Yeah, that was an interesting piece because there was the expansion of the, the sales tax on services that went into effect back in March. Um, and it had this very convoluted aspect uh, about whether sales tax is charged on certain services and installations. It depended on whether the person providing the service qualified as a retailer, that they were already essentially having to charge sales tax. Um, and this would just add it to the services. But what that ultimately meant was that you'd have two different businesses doing the same service. And on, if you hired one guy, he'd be charging you sales tax. If you hired this other guy, he's not charging you sales tax. Um, so the, the idea was to correct that in the process. Um, they made enough change to where uh, the state was going to take in a, some several million worth of additional revenue on, on top of what uh, was taken out of the bill. Uh, the, the result uh, is that uh, a lot of services are going to now be taxed, no matter who performs it, um, unless it's, it's considered sort of a capital improvement on a building or, or a house um, that where, where that added value then comes out in, in property tax. But it's still not 100% clear exactly what transactions will and won't be taxed. The Department of Revenue has to come up with their guidelines. Uh, they have not started doing that uh, because they were waiting for the governor to sign the budget. Um, so as I was trying to go down and make a list of what's going to be taxed and what's not, some of it gets kind of vague. And I, I think there's still going to be some some kinks to be worked out uh, as the Department of Revenue tries to make sure businesses know when they need to collect sales tax and when they don't have to. And we didn't hear a lot of squawking from business owners, so maybe uh, people don't even know whether or not they're going to be uh, paying more taxes or fewer taxes. Yeah, I was trying to get uh, some of the businesses to, to talk to me about their experiences with it and wasn't able to, to get any that wanted to talk, I think in part because it is so confusing that uh, some of them probably don't feel like they could speak intelligently to me about uh, what what the law says and how they feel about it. Well, since it's just the two of us, we won't do the typical headliner of the week, uh, so you won't get to hear the the great audio that we usually have. Uh, but Go look for past episodes if you really need that in your week. <laughs> but uh, it's not even a contest this week for me, so uh, the uh, it, it's just as well. I, I have I have what I would pick as the headliner of the week. Do you, by the way, do you have any uh, suggestions, or or can I just uh, give you my? my oh, pick? go for it, because okay. I mean I've, I could like throw three out and then just compete against myself, but that wouldn't be very fun. <laughs> okay, well the headliner of the week is Wild Hogs, or our headliners of the week are Wild Hogs, who can now be shot from helicopters in North Carolina after the uh, uh, North Carolina Farm Act was passed. Has that actually been signed yet? I'm not I'm not. I think that's still, sure. at least as of earlier this week, was still on the governor's desk. So um, you might have to wait so, another week so or wait two a, before you go on your wild hog helicopter wait, hunt. Wait a little bit. And actually, unless you're a wildlife officer, uh, you should don't get the don't book your helicopter. Just yeah, yet. I was I was sad to see that caveat in there was that, you know, this is not for the general public. Uh, it's only going to be trained professionals who will be shooting guns out of helicopters at hogs in the middle of nowhere. Yes. So uh, apparently in Texas, they have these 
tours you can book where you, you do shoot hogs from helicopters, aerial gunning, uh, culling, I think is really what they call it, not hunting. Um, but they have catchy names. Hella bacon was the Ooh. one that, that, uh, uh, that I, yeah. So I guess eye. if you want to do that here, you still have to do it on the ground. I think was, was there a story in, um, you know, recently about uh, a place out in Johnston County where you can go hunt and it was going to be on some uh, reality TV show. I think if you if you search hog hunting in Johnston County on, on the News Observer website, you can read about the, the uh, hog hunting tourism industry in Johnston County. Well, at any rate, that that uh, helicopter story was uh, by our, our, our colleague Dan Boylan at The Insider. And that was a that was a fascinating one to edit uh, to uh, to read. Um, so uh, that is it for the Domecast, a little shorter version today. Uh, but we do have a, uh, uh, some tape from one of the many uh, members of the legislature who uh, will be leaving this year. Uh, this one is Representative Nathan Baskerville, and you talked to him uh, the other day, what did uh, what did Representative Bath- Baskerville have to say, real quick, before we? Yeah, so so you'll hear his interview with me earlier, um, and um, you know he had some interesting takes on sort of why he was leaving. Uh, there's there's a lot of concern among the minority party that they can't get even uh, more bipartisan legislation through uh, the the legislature, and that it's a huge strain on the younger folks in the legislature who aren't independently wealthy and and don't. Um, have the ability to have the, the flexible time schedule that, that the legislature requires. So we'll, we'll let him talk about that, but the, we'll hear from, from him in that interview uh, right after the break. Okay, we'll end the show with that. Thanks for listening to the Domecast, and catch us next week. We'll try to, maybe we'll be able to get Colin in by uh, phone from, from Cleveland, the beautiful Cleveland. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll all talk here about what's been going on in North Carolina and uh, uh, talk a little bit uh, about what Colin's been sending us from the convention. So uh, thanks for listening. And welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Uh, We're talking on this segment with uh, one of the state's uh, departing legislators who won't be running for another term in the North Carolina House, uh, Representative Nathan Baskerville, who's a Democrat uh, from up in Henderson in Vance County, just north of uh, Raleigh. And uh, Nathan uh, Nathan Baskerville, thanks so much for uh, joining us this week. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, for folks who um, perhaps forgot about your uh, announcement, you wouldn't be running again uh, back in December. Uh, what were the reasons you uh, decided that you weren't going to seek another term in the House? Well, it was a variety of reasons, Colin. Um, for one, the uh, level of discourse in the legislature, I feel as though, has fallen to an all-time low. Folks don't talk to each other. There's no cooperation. Um, It's just easier to retreat to our respective corners and just lob bombs across the aisle at each other. And that, I wasn't interested in in participating in that anymore. Another reason is that, folks, it's a big sacrifice to serve in the legislature when you are really committed you're really passionate, and you're trying to do the right thing every day. Um, and so the, the 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 sacrifice, I'm a young man, I'm 35 years old, and I realized that my entire life was revolving around the legislature. I didn't have an, a life outside of the house. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't have time to also work in my law office, which is a passion of mine. I'm an attorney. 
I was away from the office four days out of the week, trying to do five days worth of work in one day. That's difficult. The clients want to see you. They want to touch you. They want to talk to you. Um, that was a big sacrifice as well, sacrificing time in the law firm. And I figured that, you know, there are other ways that I can make a difference in my community. I mean, I didn't run just to be a politician or run to get elected. I ran because I genuinely had some ideas about things that we can do, changes that we can make to make North Carolina better. Um, and you just, you know, beat your head against the wall for four years and, and, and you just have to realize enough is enough. Yeah, what do you think is behind the the change in sort of the atmosphere of the legislature? Is, is it gerrymandering? Is it something else that's caused this kind of uh, lack of dialogue and, and lack of cooperation between the two parties? Bingo. You just hit it. So when, I mean, I don't know what the exact percentage is, Colin, but I know it's got to be at least, you know, 60, 70 percent of the legislators are running unopposed because the district's are so secure. There is no reason for representatives to try to understand the other side or try to reach out and find some common ground because your district has been drawn in a way that allows you to take the most extreme positions possible. And that is on the Democratic side and on the Republican side as well. Um, No one's challenging anyone very few incumbents have challengers and that's because the districts are drawn in a way to preserve that incumbency and when you are preserving that incumbency there's no incentive to try to be reasonable or try to be moderate um, or try to work things out uh, that's a big reason the the discourse is just you know gone and also i mean the more extreme you are that more outrageous a statement you make the more out there your legislation might be. That is what gets the attention. That's what gets, you know, likes on social media. That's what gets retweets on on Twitter. Um, That's what folks talk about in the communities. That is what, unfortunately, is reported in the news. Um, And, you know, when you have 120 egomaniacs up there, and I'm one of them, I'll admit it, but when you have 120 egomaniacs up there, all of them want some attention, you you sort of gravitate to the mechanisms and the manner that will get you the most attention. And that is just unfortunate. Man. Yeah. So if, if you have, as a, as a Democrat in the house, uh, come up with a, an idea for legislation or file something that you think is got sort of not a partisan nature, it's, it's more of a bipartisan, uh, proposal. Where, where does that go from there? Do you have any shot at getting that passed? <laughs> not really. Um, not really. And to be quite frank, not many members of the majority, other than the handful of representatives and senators that are in leadership, really have a whole lot of say in the end product of that legislation either. I mean, there are a handful of Republicans in the House and a handful of Republicans in the Senate that are running everything, that are controlling everything, that that are putting their stamp on every single piece of legislation that does make it through. So I'll give you an example. I come from a rural area, and we don't have any public transportation. 
And so folks have to drive to work, drive to school, drive to church, drive, drive to the grocery store, drive everywhere. And if you don't have a driver's license, that is a big-time burden uh, for folks in rural areas. So I recognized that and drafted what I deem to be non-controversial um, legislation. It's called the North Carolina Driver's License Restoration Act that allows folks whose license has been suspended, not for bad things like driving while impaired or hit and run, but for things like failing to pay off a fine on a stop, stop sign ticket. The legislation allowed a, a way for them to get their license restored. Had a Republican co-sponsor, uh, Rob Bryan from Charlotte, who is one of the reasonable ones, who, who I actually enjoy working with. And so we worked on this legislation, crafted it, worked with the conference of district attorneys on it, uh, worked with the North Carolina Advocates of Justice on it. That's the, you know, that's the defense bar. Had the prosecutor's input, had the defense bar input. Everybody was in support of this bill. And so... Uh, we actually got it through committee um, and got it through the Senate. And then it comes time for technical corrections, Colin. I mean, you're familiar with this. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with it. But that's a big piece of legislation that's supposed to go through and add in commas to bills, correct spelling errors, punctuation errors, make sure statutory, the, numer the numerical statutory references are correct and consistent. But in this piece of technical corrections legislation, the leadership basically gutted the driver's license restoration, changed who it would apply to, changed the effective date, and basically made it feckless. Now, this is after, you know, uh, a member in the minority party has gone and, and worked very hard to get Republican co-sponsorship, to get all of the stakeholders involved, people who actually are familiar with the issues and understand the issues, the district attorney's conference and the defense bar conference, to come up with a consensus piece of legislation. And then it gets gutted in the end in a very arcane, you know, secretive manner in a technical corrections bill. And so... You know, that is frustrating. That is uh, that is frustrating, Colin. Like, that's one of the reasons, that's also, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I'm going to try to find another way to make a difference. Because um, I saw that trying to get stakeholders involved, get members of the majority involved, um, still is not going to ensure that your legislation will pass. Yeah, what do you say? I'm passionate about that I believe is the right direction for North Carolina. You know, that was that was kind of frustrating. So what do you see as potential next steps for you in terms of uh, uh, how you might uh, get involved in the future once you're out of the, the legislature? Well, there are, you know, there are always opportunities uh, if I, you know, keep my nose clean like I plan to and, and continue to be involved in the community. I work with youth groups. I work with the Teen Corps program here um, in Vance County. And so I really don't, I haven't really tried to look for other offices to run for. I've just, um, Colin, I, I'm, I'm doing yoga now. After four years in the legislature, I have to do yoga twice a week to be able to calm down. 
you know, I my my goals and ambitions at this point are, uh, you know, may seem small to other people. I just want to, you know, I, I want to be able to relax. <laughs> I want to be able to have conversations without, you know, without folks, you know, imputing one opinion to me or imputing a perspective to me one way or the other. I just want to be able to talk to folks. I want to be able to relax. I want to be able to live a life. So I don't, I really haven't anticipated any other elected offices. I just want to continue to serve in the community, do my community service, work with the teen groups, and what will be, will be. Yeah, so uh, you're one of the few, I guess, people in their 20s and 30s serving in the legislature right now. Uh, what do you think it's going to take in order to uh, get a legislature that, that allows folks like yourself to, to serve without being you know, independently wealthy or, or retired to, to be able to make that time commitment? Well, this is not a very popular idea, but you've got to pay folks more. You have got to pay representatives more. Um, you know, ranking file members like myself, we get paid $13,000, $13,900 a year. And no 20, 30-year-old that, you know, is, can give up an actual job to go to Raleigh and make $13,000 a year. Now, of course, you get health insurance, and that's a big deal. But for young people like myself, I, I don't go to the doctor. <laughs> you know, that is not a huge incentive for us. The health insurance that is, and I, I am appreciative of it, and it and it is um, welcomed, but that is not a big incentive for folks our age, my age. Um, so you got to pay them more. If we could have some sort of consistency with the time commitment, um, like we could, they could call us back in the session tomorrow. You know, tomorrow, <laughs> if the speaker wants to do that. You know, and as a matter of fact, we may, that may occur. Um, you know, we had a federal judge said that we have to come back and redraw the Wake County school board lines, redraw the Wake County county commissioner lines, and if we don't do it, he will. You know, that's another result um, of legislation that we passed. We passed legislation that is clearly unconstitutional. We debate that, say that is unconstitutional. We pass legislation anyway. Their lawsuits cost us millions of dollars to defend these unconstitutional laws. Then we have to come back in a special session to undo what we did, which cost the taxpayers even more money. Um, and so a young person that is trying to maintain a job because they're not independently wealthy and serve in the legislature, when you have to just drop everything at the you know drop of a dime and go back to Raleigh to undo something that we have done, that is difficult. So we need some sort of consistency. All right, well, this is when we're going to start session. This is where we when we're going to end session. If we don't get it done during this time period, then it's over. <laughs> you know, if we are ever going to get called in for a special session, it's going to be during this month, during this week. Um, I think that would aid folks my age um, to be able to serve and to serve effectively um, to serve effectively sure you can be you can come up there or you can get elected and then not go and do your job but that's not those aren't the type of members that we want um, so some consistency with the time commitment um, you know and more money people think that North Carolina legislators are getting paid what you know United States congressmen and women get paid you know they get paid a hundred some thousand dollars a year we don't 
it's a it's a totally different ball game. But the commitment, the time commitment, is the same. Yeah. Well, I wanted to end uh, real quickly on sort of a positive note. Uh, looking back at your years in the legislature, what do you see as the uh, the most positive thing that's happened, or the the biggest thing that you've been able to accomplish despite all the uh, uh, challenges of, of being in the minority party? Well, <clears throat> I am proud of I'm proud of all the work that I've done. I'm proud of all the legislation that I was a sponsor of or co-sponsor of. When you when you're in the minority party, Colin, you sort of have to reassess and reevaluate what a victory is. You know, a lot of times we engage in um, mitigation. You know, damage control try to make things not as bad as they could be. A lot of times a victory is bringing awareness to the details of legislation that people might not know. Um, but, you know, one a piece of legislation that I was a primary sponsor on was uh, legislation to um, freeze the assets of individuals that are charged and convicted of exploiting elderly. You know, a lot of times these uh, senior citizens will get caught up in these schemes um, and, and get defrauded out of money. There will be a judgment, but the defendant is judgment-proof because they've hidden the assets, they've sold the assets, they've spent the money. So legislation that I passed with uh, retired uh, legislator Rick Glacier uh, froze those assets so that seniors uh, would still be able to recoup from them uh, if they were defrauded. I'm proud of that. You know, that means something that's actual legislation that's going to improve people's lives. I'm very proud of that. Um, but if you, if, if you want some big, grand <laughs> law that I was able to pass, no. It's more like mitigation control, damage control, uh, trying to bring awareness. Um, I'm proud that I have served and wasn't the subject of any ethical inquiry. <laughs> no one... <laughs> You know, said Baskerville did anything wrong with the money. Nobody said Baskerville, you know, everybody said Baskerville worked hard. He was intelligent. He was reasonable. Um, I think I've earned respect from my colleagues. Even if we don't disagree, they know that I'm passionate and I respect their position, but I just disagree with it. I'm proud of the relationships that I've developed. Um, and I, I think I've served my, my district well. All right, Representative Nathan Baskerville, a Democrat from Henderson, thanks so much for speaking with us, and best of luck on your next chapter after the legislature. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 